Welcome to a podcast of candy. I'm Emil, pronouns he, they. I'm Sam, pronouns she, her. And this is our niche self-indulgent mini-series where we talk all things A Crown of Candy. Today, we have a guest to come and talk to us about religion in A Crown of Candy. This is Chrome. Chrome, say hi. I'm Chrome Roman of Curls Borealis. Formerly trans and bored fame, they, them pronouns, please. <laughs> so just in case you're listening to this podcast without any idea of what we're talking about, A Crown of Candy is a D&D campaign about what is essentially Candy Lamb Game of Thrones. Also, spoiler warning for everything in A Crown of Candy, obviously. And today's lovely episode is all about religion and the representation thereof, religion in A Crown of Candy. Yeah, so the first thing that sort of comes to mind is obviously the church and its role mm. in A Crown of Candy as sort of like an institutional villain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The church in A Crown of Candy essentially um, plays the role of like the Catholic church way back when during the Crusades era. Mm. So it's definitely drawing on that like medieval influence of Here's this uh, institutionalized religion throughout all of these nations that has decided to expand itself into every nation as like a centralized ch- church state power structure. Hence the whole thing with like the Meatlands have to like swear. You have to swear on the Balbian Bible. <laughs> it's some bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, the same thing that happened with uh, Candia as well, which was like the eradication of the sweetening path, which is technically the indigenous, or rather the faith native to Candians. So it's all of like that whole, here comes the Catholic Church taking away your individuality as separate states in this yeah. food world. Yeah, it's all food. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's it always comes food. back to. Always, always. We're all, all killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love, like, yeah, Brennan's detail and care when it comes to, like, representing how important the church was in the medieval times because people don't realize how much there just wasn't a differentiation between, like, religion and life. Your life was just an essential part of that. And, um, yeah, and more than I think most stories, he really goes hard on, like, the competing sects of the church, the competing ideologies, like the different um, doctrines and things. Like the church wasn't mm-hmm. just a uniform state either. Like it had a whole bunch of con- internal conflicts and like it changed depending on yeah, the nation that was it was part of and the different people that were in charge and it constantly split apart and came back together. And like there are so many different like um, sides of it. And that was like really cool to see explored so mm-hmm. like realistically in a, in a food world, right? Like this is food. <laughs> it's yeah. so good. It was a very good dis- a depiction of like a spe- of specifically Western Catholicism way back during mm. the Crusades era because like as you said I'm sorry I just read the uh, play for my English course uh, Doctor Faustus and it was 100 mm. percent that the church mm. did not just define the way that you lived your life but how to live your life in a moral way which mm. is 100 percent the role of the Bulbian faith take in a crown yeah. of candy. It's not even just like, this is what we all do on Sundays. It's, it gives people the guide on how to like live their lives of what is morally right or wrong, how to be like a productive, mm. decent citizen in the realm of Tamada. Yes, for sure. 
Yeah, there was learned, like we always learned in our music classes, we study a lot of church music because it's about like how important the church was in the society. There is no secular music, right? Yeah, so going off of kind of the church being an institutional villain, I do think Brennan does a good job of criticizing the church as an institution and not necessarily the followers of the bulb. So like Citrina and Cara Melinda, like the main two like good Bulbian um, followers, they aren't criticized for being Bulbians. And of course, the general populace of the church. So like um, they aren't condemned for following the Bulbian faith. So I think it's interesting that we look at figureheads rather than kind of, oh, if you believe in this, then you're trash. So I think that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, the figureheads versus the populace. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it's sort of like using the church as a tool for power and how the yeah, the corruption of religious institutions and how they use it for violence as opposed to necessarily criticizing the religion itself. Sorry, religions aren't inherently evil. It's just that mm-hmm. the actions of people who let that power go to their head is what yeah. can stain them in history as being like violent or being bad in some senses of the word because your leaders are actively choosing to eradicate other people's beliefs because Mm. their own belief is so inherently rooted in the fact that they have some form of supremacy over others Mm, yeah yeah I think probably one of the most striking moments for me, like, it almost gave me genuine chills was that moment when um, I think LePan looks into Keridan's eyes to see if he's being brainwashed or anything. And Brennan says, you sense mm-hmm. that Keridan's faith mm-hmm. is so strong, there is no possible way that he could ever be, like, mind control. He's doing this of his own free will because he thinks it's the best for the Bulbian faith. And so to see how that faith can be both so profound and also so twisted as to go as far as to try and assassinate a leader of a country Mm. who's pretty much for the most part not doing anything wrong or like um morally reprehensible Mm. that was like very oh my god that that was a really good moment yeah and i think it comes back to the idea of like the contradiction of it because you Mm. do have like these um religious figureheads that are just yeah devoted to the religion and yet are clearly not following it like clearly not following (laughs) the idea of the bowl being like all loving um and against violence and that kind of thing um yeah and it's interesting and also like the parallels to real life it also does an incredibly good job especially in terms of like realism in the realm of a crown of candy despite all of the characters being good people adventure time (laughs) style but it's the fact that Religion historically in real life and then also in a crown of candy has been you has been like warped so easily throughout time into something where mm. people don't follow the exact word of what they believe in, mm. but due to a combination of like inaccessibility to scripts due to uh mass illiteracy in the populace and also due to the mm. reframing of morality in terms of like missionaries. That uh, huge, huge movements of truly mass destruction of non, I'm thinking about Christianity, so I'll just say it straight (laughs) up, of non-Christian faith. Yeah. The mass destruction (laughs) of non-Christian faith in the name of the one true Lord, the true God. (laughs) 
for sure you learn like a lot of like how education and literacy belong to the church pretty much like the most people who were able to write down um and read things were from the church and so the power of language i guess really comes to the forefront there um and information and keeping that yeah for the longest time it was really just the clergy who could read and write and then you could own and then of course obviously obviously the royal houses could read and write but they were also only allowed to stay as royalty especially in england if they were part of the church Mm. Mm. yeah um like yeah we learn again not to bring everything back to uh, music but like (laughs) how like the very first written music um (laughs) was from the church um because that's like yeah the church knew how to read and write and so we get our very first forms of music notation through the church and yeah who knows and like it's the kind of thing where like historical accuracy isn't real because we only have the records from the church but there were probably like so much so much more music that we just aren't we just didn't know existed because we didn't have a written record of it mm. yes not that yeah I kind of I'm kind of adding myself as like you know, my only <laughs> processing of religion is through my music True, no, you're fine, Sam. I mean, it's also the same way on how, like, the people who constant, who the people who win the wars are the ones who define history. And the same thing with, like, mm. visual art as well, where it's, like, a lot of the art that we study, at least uh, in the West, I don't know about <laughs> anywhere else, but most of the <laughs> art that we study in art history is purely based off of Eurocentricity. We learn a lot about the Greeks, mm. and then from the Greeks, it's just... Like, we learn about the religious manuscripts uh, created mm. by, like, the Western monks. We learn about mm. Renaissance art, the Sistine Chapel. But then we don't learn about anywhere else. And it's definitely something that I think is also reflected in the Crown of Candy. Because we, as viewers, we know nothing about the Maitlands. We know yeah. nothing about... We really know almost nothing about the sweetening path. And what little we do know is from a religion that's already been destroyed. And I mm. think... Us as viewers, a lot of that can can be reflected in probably what it's like for just like an average Candian. We know so much mm-hmm. about Bulby and Faith, but we know almost nothing about any of the other faiths that pre-existed Bulby and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also like the lack of information is a point in a crown of candy where the sugar plum fairy mourns all the lost religions and lost the things that were systematically destroyed by the church. Right? Yeah, we'll talk more about the sugar plum fairy a little bit later. Um, yes. What I did want to mention is that importance of, like, like how the crusade is, like, such mm. a destructive, like, explicitly destructive force in a kind of candy. Like, it is explicitly, like, a villainous invasion. Um, and yeah. how, yeah, that becomes, like, something the, um, candy has to fight off. Like, crusades were objectively bad <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yes. And I do love that, um, yeah, I don't know, that little snit, the little tidbit that Calroy was, like, going to have himself baptized into the faith to get out of it it's like it's like he is clearly lying he's clearly lying he's clearly not a Bulbian. but people accept it because it like serves the purpose of the church it's like it maintains the church's power um and we sort of get that glimpse of like politics is religion in this world um and mm. then caro who is the politically savvy character knows how to do that and knows there is no like there's no secular thing it's like politics and religion are pretty much um, hold the same power in this world and yeah it's good it's yeah. good it's a good little <laughs> <tidbit>. <laughs> like I definitely think 
especially because we're focusing on candy and candy as a nation because most of our PCs are candy. And I do think Brennan and the cast do a good job of saying something as simple as crusades are bad because you'd mm-hmm. be surprised at how often like both education wise and like just storytelling wise, how people try to the other side um, shit like colonization and crusades mm. and mission work and all of that. So I do think they do a good job of saying like, hey, this shit is evil. Mm. <laughs> like, this is objectively bad and no one should think this is good. So I do enjoy that. Yeah, it's always like those arguments of like, oh no, they thought it was right, they thought it was justified, so it doesn't mean it wasn't evil. Mm-hmm. It was, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also feel like um, Calroy being sworn into the Bulbian faith, it reminds me a lot of like, mm, history time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> real life history time it reminds me a lot of like because this was something that happened in england right and so i think it was king henry is the one who did this mm-hmm. but he was not liked by the pope and so when he was sworn in he did not like yes king henry scots he turned britain from being just pro from being a catholic to protestant and then yeah, was ex- like whole and then all of britain was like excommunicated from the church and it's something that was like this moment in a crown of candy of calroy swearing in of um definitely a moment where basha Miaso, amathar and now calroy where they can only be recognized as actual political leaders if they have a connection to the major religious power in Calarum. Otherwise, they'll get excommunicated like Amethar was excommunicated. Yeah. It's yeah. very like these are these are the ways in which political leaders can man- manipulate religion to suit their own deeds and stuff. Like religion as an institution. Yeah. How religion can manipulate political leaders. So true. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think while we're still on the topic of kind of the church and like the Bulbian faith, uh, I want to bring up this question that we got on Curious Cat. And it says, what are your thoughts on Citrina? Love the podcast. Wonder what potential you think was missed, considering that Citrina was literally a saint in the church who was killed by the church. And so th- this isn't really so much about the church as it is about Citrina, but it is a very interesting question. I have so many thoughts on Citrina, but I'm going to let you two go first before I come out with the truly bonker yonkers take. So true. Um, yes. My thought about that is that like it's a really interesting insight on like how it's really not about religion at all. Um, because Citrina mm. was fully of the bulb and she was blessed by it and she really fully believed in it in a way that um clearly like the other political leaders in the church didn't. Um, and it's about, I think, like, yeah, that inter- the internal conflicts of the church and the lengths people will go to being corrupted by the power of it to to keep their power and killing Satrina. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's just, like, yeah, the fact that she was sainted after that, like, she was canonized after that, <laughs> is just, oh, I just, like, yeah, I think the plot is that, like, the church doesn't, didn't realize Elizabeth ordered it, right? Like, I think that was meant, like, that's mm. a secret that only Carroy really revealed. So that's just, like, oh, Love it. Love that. It's really the fact that Citrina, not Citrina, Elizabeth ordered Citrina's death. And through Citrina's death, that is how this third sweet rock sister ended up becoming a saint in the Bulbian right. faith because she died in mm-hmm. such a dramatic, 
terrible death that it was just like here is your sainthood ma'am and of course that's something that's going to piss off elizabeth because it's this candian uh heretic who is now a truly complete part of the bulbian faith that she cannot Mm. remove yeah how are you going to excommunicate a saint (laughs) so good so good yeah it's just like she brought this on herself like she (laughs) if she just you know let Satrina die out maybe nothing would have happened but it's the fact that she had her killed so dramatically on the streets like oh beautiful (laughs) (laughs) yeah kind of my opinion on Satrina thinking of her as basically kind of a bit of an archetype. I like Satrina's characterization a lot because she is a saint. She is very religious. She's a healer. Uh, she's blessed by like the bulb. And her characterization never really does lean towards motherly in any capacity. And I love that because, again, basing it mostly on like the Catholic and Christian faith, so many religious female figures are motherly in some way or another. Mother Teresa, whole fraught history, won't go into her today. And like the Virgin Mary, these, and like even a little bit Mary Magdalene, these are all very almost motherly figures. Some people, um, some of them in more ways than others. So it's very nice seeing a character. And I think in general, in a lot of media, uh, women who heal are always seen as motherly, whether they are like emotional leaders or that um, they have an actual kid. I think it's good to have someone who is so intertwined with, like, goodness and faith and religion who is, like, just a sister, you know? Like, just kind of a nun doing her own thing who's not at all, like, connected with motherhood. I like that. (laughs) So true, Satrina, not being another Katara. (laughs) (laughs) I do, I do like on how Satrina's whole deal is that she believes in like the kindness of the future and the kindness of the bulb. Something about Satrina is something so inherently rooted in the ability to believe in some kind of warmth in everybody and a warmth in the bulb because she did have the idea that the bulb cares for everybody, that the bulb is something who created this world and holds everyone dear. And it's it's a very powerful in terms of like even though it's very powerful in terms of like Satrina is not a complete mother figure but she does have these qualities that paint the bulb in the bulbian faith and also herself in this very warm very wholesome light Mm. that you don't really see in every other in every other character and especially in the bulbian religion mm. in terms of how elizabeth treats it which truly in which truly was something that i've brought up with a certain someone before that <laughs> one of the biggest problems in a crown of candy is on how every other rock sister had some form of follower who carried on their beliefs. Lasley had Theobald. Rococa had Amathar, and she also had the twins in and of themselves. Mm. And then Safria wasn't really that big of a uh, character in terms of the entire overarching theme of A Crown of Candy. However, her legacy was painted in terms of Basha Miaso and the political mm. state of the Meatlands. 
And it's just Citrina where we have that huge hole. And in this like story of kind of like the role that religion plays, we are we get that balance between uh, creation destruction of Citrina and Elizabeth. But then once when Citrina dies, we don't have any follower of hers who continues on her story or her legacy. She dies out. And then it's almost as if all of that um, gentle and warm and loving Balbian faith just dies out with her. Mm, and it's a tragedy, right? Like, that is specifically fame. Yeah. Like, it's an awful thing. And, yeah, I do love, yeah, even though we get very little screen time of Satrina, that we sort of get um, get why, I guess, she would be seen as a threat to the to the Bulbian church. Because it's like, she's Bulbian, but she, um, like, her ideologies of love and kindness and warmth, she genuinely is like, the Bulb will, look, will bless you because you are in love. And you can see how why that becomes a threat to the political the actual political structure, even though, like, that is the core of the Bulbian religion. It's not, it's still not suitable for the church because it's a different, yeah, it doesn't help upkeep their power. And again, I do still think, like, it's an incredible moment of, like, on how Elizabeth completely destroys everything that she views as something that can stand in her way of her specific sect and brand of Bulbian faith. However, Brendan was trying to like show balance. That balance was not achieved since the moment, the exact moment when Citrina no longer exists, her brand of Bulbian faith goes out with her. We need mm. we need that. We need that in a chronic candy. So that way it's not just like, oh, religion is evil in this mm. in this over in this overarching allegory. We need that. Certainly, portions of religion has and can be extremely bad to everyone who lives. <laughs> but there are also portions of religion where people do go to it to find faith or to heal or mm. to find answers in life. And that is not something that we see in this season or, in my opinion, most of the seasons of Dimension 20. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a, like, despite all of this, um, portrayal of the church there's like a lack of time spent and depth in really exploring the characters outside of that who really do believe in the Bulbian religion um and followers of that faith that aren't like inherently bad you know um and like characters like Satrina mm-hmm. and Carol Melinda or Morris Bree where it's like we don't actually spend a lot of time with them to really like think about how what their what their religion means to them and how um they see it which is a shame yeah. yeah, I think there's also very much a lack of like bringing in depth of people who follow things that are outside of the bowl, main mostly uh, Spiria and Joran, who are always introduced as followers of the sweetening path, but then mm-hmm. they come off of, of as like very jokey P- NPCs, but they're very like jokey characters mostly because like the first piece of lore we get about them is that they have a bunch of partners Mm. and so it is my main problem with how religion is executed in a crown of candy is that it becomes very wishy-washy yeah like i do want to say that i think d20 as a medium in and of itself like thinking outside of just a crown of candy i think d20 sort of has made its stance on religion clear in that like despite you know ali clearly working through their religious trauma on D20. Um, it's clear that, like, yeah, religion is fine, right? Like, but because of, like, the stances of the cast, it's, like, 
it's always going to be that, um, yeah, the church plays some kind of part and like more importantly, the institution of the church plays some Mm -hmm. sort of part in the story. But I also think despite that, like we, like despite religion being such an important factor in A Crown of Candy as a campaign, we don't really get to see a lot of like the nuances of it. Mm. Yeah, we get an incredibly biased, like very one, very flat and one-sided view of how religion exists. Especially, God, I hate, I hate the depiction of Spiria. Mm. She, she's so, she comes off as so white. There's something, and I get that Brennan is very white, but there is something. <laughs> Listen, he has death. He has breath. He can play Victoria Brown and let me know that she is a full black mama. And he and he can say young blood for Winston Brown. But he when he plays Spiria, she comes off as every white mom on Instagram who sells <laughs> herbal life and goes, Peace, love, prosperity. Here's my dream catcher chakra. Yeah. It's very weird that she comes off as so like the very specific brand of white women who goes into practices that she should not be practicing. So like the ki- the type of white women who are like, align your chakras and say it exactly that way, right? And then, but she's actually like a priestess of the sweetening path and she has that kind of magic. And the way she's played off, it feels like that magic is phony, which is very weird. <laughs> I don't know how many of the people who uh, listen to this podcast are Latina, but this is specifically me and Emil. But she is yeah. really like a white woman who is for who has heard about Santeria for the first time and goes, Oh wow, look at all these. She's not even from oh. Cuba. She's not. She has blonde <laughs> no, hair. She's <laughs> like, how dare you assume I'm white? Blonde hair, blue she's eyes. Fully, like, <sighs> she's fully a conquistador white uh, Latina <laughs> and she just goes, Wow, ooh wow this is so interesting let me get in on this and then and then like justifies this as like oh yeah no i'm from like latin america as a whole but that's spuria as a whole in my opinion (laughs) just and i get i feel like brennan was trying to play her off as someone who is very soothing however Mm -hmm. there is a certain tone to his vocal inflection (laughs) of playing spuria condescending yeah that is extremely condescending i find spirit so funny (laughs) he's a girl boss i think oh she's hilarious yeah he's hilarious and now she makes me mad (laughs) (laughs) she's a satirical character for us she is funny in the way we make fun of her i think going off of that yeah we can talk about like i guess the later spoilers of like the actual truth behind this religion and the actual truth behind the nature of this world i guess that these relig- that these deities the bulb and the hungry one are uncaring forces of nature they are uncaring um and it is interesting that we have this truth of the universe being confirmed yeah i guess like the truth behind it all um and we know that like the bulbian church is wrong the <laughs> citrina was wrong <laughs> all these people were like I guess in a way that is like explicitly like they weren't right about their religions and it becomes clear that the religion is a belief rather than a truth. Mm, And yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting take, I guess, because even in other D20 seasons, it's sort of implied that like your belief is what makes gods real. But in this, they've gone straight to like, no, they're not real at all. And I think it's, a, I do think it's really interesting. Well, I think this is a moment where 
I know that the three of us have this extra little behind the scenes tidbit <laughs> of what Brennan actually meant. But so to everybody at home who doesn't know me, I had an interview with uh, Brennan of Lee Mulligan fame <laughs> in, I think it was December, early December, late November. And I talked to Brennan about religion, specifically in a chronic candy, which is why I know way too much. And also, in addition to my cultural anthropology background, but um, <laughs> it is this moment where, like in canon, in the actual show in and of itself, Brennan said on how these two balls were the bulb and the hungry one, and it was a moment where, like, it, what we get in canon and the interpretation that we get from that is that. All other religions are incorrect except for the Bulbian faith because it is confirmed that these two balls are the bulb and the hungry one. However, what he actually meant, and he did say that this was the worst bit of improv he has ever done, <laughs> but what he actually meant was that these, uh, these balls, these two balls, these two huge orbs are not actually the bulb and the hungry one but are rather the chaotic, raw nature of creation and destruction, which is how Liam was essentially able to create a, a trimurti, um, the idea of like these uh, three forces of creation, preservation, and destruction mm -hmm. that I believe is from Hinduism, if I recall correctly. And that's essentially what trimurti is, right? And it's just this moment of like, okay, cool. We have the raw power of creation. We have this raw power of destruction. Now we have this third uh, preservation coming in, which truly, in my opinion, balances everything out. Yeah. I honestly, Crum, I'm so glad we have you here because it is really interesting to see, like, uh, from the tidbits that you have from your interview with Brennan, of like comparing what we got in canon when they're under the pressure of, of having improv. And then the kind of, like, reasoning behind what he ends up saying. Basically, Brennan, you should drop your lore doc. If you don't want to get a call-out post, drop your lore doc. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely a combination of, like, they have scheduling issues, number one, because of the whole, like, fire marshal thing. And number two, they were actually filming at, like, 2, 3 a.m. <laughs> during some of these scenes. And they were filming for hours already, hours. So everybody is just tired and, like, Something that Brendan said that I don't ask me why I know this verbatim, quote unquote, don't play this sad little violin for me. But at some point, I just had to say things so we could continue rolling and we could get it over with. <laughs> Man was tired. Cass was tired. Yeah, that production, the production issues of just like not having enough time and having to cut things down. And we really don't get to see what is a nuanced subject to be actually explored with nuance. Mm. scheduling absolutely killed the new any nuance that we could have had in regards yeah. to religion on top of the pcs uh completely misunderstanding the allegories brendan was trying to put in front of their faces <laughs> so true yeah, it's less, like it's this whole plot where the spf is an indigenous religion and it's she's clearly meant to be perceived with a lot more empathy and a lot more sympathy for what she's trying to do and the and the pieces are just like kill her kill her kill her kill her and i was like <laughs> okay <laughs> Absolutely no questions asked. But here's the thing, here's the thing, right? That's our interpretation of like the sugar plum fairy, which mm. 
I do believe in, and I'll get into that a little in a little bit. <laughs> but what Brennan was trying to put in front of the PCs was the whole uh, slogan, slogan of the house, uh, in sweetness, there is strength, is that the sugar plum fairy represented the idea of dying sweetly rather than struggling and fighting to get your hands mm-hmm. dirty, but uh, living to see another day. So she was kind of this idea of like mm-hmm. people laying down and just being sweet and kind while everybody rolled them over. And that's what the original intention of in sweetness there is strength was, which we saw a little bit with Jadane was like, you know, him being a pushover and focusing <laughs> too much on the sweetness and not the strength. And so mm-hmm. it was supposed to be a moment, according to Brennan, it was supposed to be a moment where the PCs were like, nah, fuck this shit. We're going to do whatever we want. And mm. instead, Emily was like, oh, in sweetness, there is strength. We're going to reclaim this. <laughs> What? And it turned into something completely different that he had no control over. That's so funny. So true. Sometimes PCs just brute force their way through plot. <laughs> um, it's really funny. I truly think it's hilarious on how all the PCs had this allegory and went, nah, we're not going to listen to it. But yeah, that's so interesting. So like the sugar plum fairy being the figure of like sweetness and yeah, yeah, being that sort of thing of like, letting this destruction always happen to them um if it means yeah she was supposed to be the sweet dreams that you die in rather Mm. than uh the future that you can have by fighting right Mm. yeah because i could definitely i could definitely tell like brennan was trying to say something about the in sweetness (laughs) there is strength like like slogan just from like like even the cowroy flashback where he's like so what do you think about our motto it's like he's clearly trying to do something here but (laughs) by the end of the season still did not quite get it and that makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah i think it's very funny and how i have all of this background (laughs) knowledge No, it's so good. I'm like, oh my god, all this juicy, this juicy law information. That's so interesting. I yeah. literally did not know that. I was that makes so much sense yeah, though. Like it does. Um, yeah, that was supposed to be the allegory we were getting. Like, interesting, yeah. interesting, 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 interesting. Oh, I'm gonna be thinking about this for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole point of like the sugar plum fairy versus uh, her holding back cinnamon. Because she mm. is creation, mm. and cinnamon is destruction. Ooh, that's good. Mm. Yeah. So this is not interpretation. Again, this is Brennan. This is Brennan's full thing. Was that the sugar fairy was supposed to be creation, but creation in terms of preserving sweetness, and cinnamon is destruction in terms of fucking sweetness and getting your hands dirty so you can live to see another day. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Really quickly, before we move on from that kind of concept of uh, the hungry one and the bulb, we actually had this really interesting question on Tumblr from someone anonymous. And they asked, would love to hear your thoughts on how Crown of Candy handles fantasy atheism. Atheist worlds and stories are usually so nihilistic and depressing. And it was cool to see that discussion between Liam and LaPan, where LaPan talks about how being consumed isn't necessarily a bad thing. So yeah, I think this was a really interesting question, specifically talking about fantasy atheism. And so throughout the entirety of this episode, me personally, I'm going to be 
flip-flopping around on how I feel on Mm -hmm. it, but I do think it is a kind of interesting take on magic and how it can manifest in others without there being faith, especially Mm -hmm. because D&D magic is so incredibly faith-based with clerics and stuff and stuff like divine intervention and communing with gods. However, I wish they had been more all or nothing with it. And I do understand there's improv, so they can't really have anything Mm. concrete. But I wish it was more like um, the bulb and the hungry one are merely sources of power. And I wish they had constructed the world knowing that beforehand, because it would have made things a little clearer throughout the series if like the PCs knew, okay, like these things or like these uh, bits of regional faith that we get aren't necessarily uh, real. Because it is like very saddening to me that we get little bits of faith in Candia and from what's cut, we hear of other bits of faith in like Fructera where they were supposed to be like a rock cult. And it's very sad to kind of end it all with like, oh, they're, they're not real. Because when you're creating a story, you have the advantage of being able to create things that are real. So it's a little sad to create things that are not real in your family fantasy world for me personally Mm, like I think um when it comes to like fantasy atheism I was told this I haven't actually read um Game of Thrones or watched Game of Thrones um (laughs) but I was told um thanks Faisan that um Akrana Kenny's view on religion comes pretty much directly from Game of Thrones in the fact that they there are like no gods I guess or like they come or they all come from like the same uncaring source of power which is the um creation and destruction and I think it's like it's sort of taken that but use it in a lot more of an uplifting manner yeah like the question specifically says like in, in terms of being consumed it's like their lives still have value and purpose even if there's no afterlife or paradise or even if these mm. religions aren't necessarily real and I think that is like an uplifting way of viewing atheism I guess or like the alternate to the two sources of power is change right there's creation and destruction but then there's that opportunity to change and I think that is super I really like it because I really like the idea of guess that even in this sort of like really nihilistic world like even though a crown of candy is so like fucked up that despite all of that people can still um have that opportunity to change and like yeah I like it when fantasy worlds have that little bit of like variation right I like it (laughs) that in this one in this specific one the the truth is just that religion is like isn't necessarily true to this world that there's still hope to be found and that it's not it doesn't mean that love and joy and belief can no longer exist yeah that's really nice that's a really nice interpretation (laughs) look I'm an optimist what can I say yeah, I don't know why I just sounded like this was my literature class, but um, I guess my final thoughts on the matter is that I think it was a really interesting idea of that kind of whole, well, like being consumed isn't such a bad thing. However, I think it just was a little bit badly executed. Mm. Um yeah. Yeah, again, it's just a little pessimistic of them to introduce these strange and wonderful folk tales and then go, oh, you know, like, you know how in our world these things aren't real? They aren't real in the world of Candia either. So yeah, it's just a bit of a missed opportunity. There's something to be said about how this, despite this being like the most grand and realistic world, is the, also the one where the gods just like don't exist. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like the realistic, like deadly world that is sort of mimics real medieval culture. And also, yeah, gods aren't real. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> what I like, um, especially due to my background of like having this combination of exposure to 
um, multiple cultures just by living in the household that I am, uh, being mm. a Black Boricuan, having a connection to Yoruba and to uh, mm. Native religion, which is the Tainos, the indigenous of Puerto Rico, of, Bori, of Borinquen, but also due to my neighbors, like being a Hindu and kind of like just what I like is on how there is no one true religion and all religions are equally real in the sense of the gods being all of them essentially being spells. So it's just like it is also something very similar to a world that I'm building for a uh, graphic novel I am writing. <laughs> And I'm not going to give any spoilers about it. Mm-mm, not y'all going to learn that on your own. But um, <laughs> it is very similar to something that I'm doing where it's like not everything is completely 100% real. And so it's definitely rather than like completely confirmed, it's more based off of belief and what you believe is real, which is a huge portion of cultural anthropology. <laughs> Which is like how your perception shapes how you interact, not just with yourself, but with the religion that you believe in and with other people around you who share that religion or who who don't share what you practice. And it's it really like it really is. It really is like about perception of the gods and about perception of like what is true, what is real, what's not, who you are in terms of faith. And that's that's what I like about the idea of like here are the energies in this world, and these energies of, are what everything else draw their power from, which are directly affected by the people who believe in these deities. That's what I love about this kind of like atheist uh, perception of religion in a chronic candy, just because it does hold like an endless opportunity of the different gods that we are supposed to see the different household gods that we are supposed to see from the sweetening path just interacting with normal average candian people of the different meatland gods that we never got to see that hold such a such a power in over like over the people of the meatlands and it's something beautiful in my opinion it can really be beautiful it's just the fact that we don't be it in canon Mm -hmm. that's the major issue is that we just don't see any of these finer details in canon because all we get is the bold the hungry one the sugar plum fairy and cinnamon which a lot of people don't know is that cinnamon is supposed to be part of the sweetening path Mm -hmm. in and of itself he is not just a creature he is actually a part of the sweetening path (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean like i think it's mentioned in that like one of the old tomes it talks about like a cinnamon dragon um as a force mm. of destruction um yeah but it's that kind of thing where it's like we don't really get to see much outside of that and like especially when it comes to the meatlands it's like those cut episodes really could make or break the the concept and the idea of religion especially from the meatlands it's really the whole thing on how like i know what we should have gotten i know <laughs> what we should have gotten and the true and like how full and vibrant Candia, not even just Candia, sorry, Calorum as a whole is supposed to be with like different different little nuances and tidbits to religion. And I know that's what Brendan was trying to go for because the Sweetening Path is supposed to be based off of like Druids and uh, that kind of Celtism that he mm-hmm. comes from and the Meatlands is based off of animism. However, again, 
basically just the the uh, evil Christian Catholic faith <laughs> with no other nuance to balance it out. Mm. Which I'm glad that that's not what's like the true real thing in uh, <laughs> Calorum in this realm of a crown of candy. It's just that oh no, they these people just got it way wrong. Yeah. <laughs> again, I'm I'm sorry. I'm thinking about Satrita again, and it's this <laughs> moment where I remember I was talking to one of my friends who I'm gonna say their name. I was talking to Squid, and uh, they mentioned and how they feel like because of Elizabeth's absolute faith to the bulb and how the bulb not being real or the bulb being uncanny uncaring can like reflect as kind of like a mockery of Satrina. And it's not that Satrina was wrong exactly. It was just that her belief was true to her and that's all that matters, right? Mm-hmm. Just because she was wrong in like the grand scheme of how magic actually works in Calorum doesn't mean that her faith was incorrect. Her faith was completely right. Mm-hmm. Because she thought it was right and we think it's right and it was kind to everybody and that's what made it good yeah again i'm just gonna say it again chrome i love having you on as a guest because you have like really amazing thoughts and also i love the tidbits you bearing from your interview like i'm just fully i'm not talking much because i'm just processing it and like really letting it sink (laughs) into my brain (laughs) For sure. This is really good. I wish I recorded that interview with Brennan because I feel like people <laughs> should uh, would have been so it from the source. Yeah. But yeah, no, I- now you're getting it from me. And now you're getting it with my <laughs> cultural anthropology background of uh, showing you where it could have gone, where it did go, and what we're going to so do with true. that. Which, I mean, this, this is a little bit of a tangent, but fun fact, Brennan and I did talk about, like, the eradication of the indigenous people and mm. also of Druids because both um, both the overall uh, culture of indigenous people, like, throughout North America and also throughout South America as well, is that a lot of us are, you know, oral storytellers. And the same thing goes for the Druids. And so once when Los Conquistadors came to the Americas and the uh, Brits eradicated the Druids. A lot of that oral storytelling was lost, which is very, very interesting because Brennan knows where I'm coming from. But because he is, number one, an atheist philosophy major and number two is white, he doesn't fully like get all the nuances of what it means to interact with religion as a person of color. Mm. And to also live as a person of color whose entire culture as a whole has not just been erased, but continues to be uh, stolen from them on a daily basis. Mm. I do want to say we did get a question about this. Um, I think there was an animal curious cat asked, how do you think representations of race overlap with representations of religion in A Crown of Candy? Yeah, that really helps answer that question in terms of like, yes, Breton is white and um, like, I know A Crown of Candy was never going to be the campaign where it really explored everything to do about religion, and it was never going to be the campaign as well that a majority of white people would ever be able to explore, like, what it meant for people of colour and their beliefs in religion. Um, but I still want to talk about it because I think it would be really cool, um, and it would have been really interesting mm-hmm. to see, I guess, the nuances of that. Because I know religion, for, for people of colour, is a really complicated issue, and it often comes at, mm-hmm. like, an intersection of, like, um, of genuine, like, 
enjoyment, I guess, of that religion and also like, oh, but what are like the systematic factors that like had this? Like in terms of like, in terms of like, yeah, not to be personal, but like um, <laughs> for me, it's very much like my, I grew up in a religious environment because my parents um, were religious and they, but they were also immigrants. They came here from Malaysia and having like not really having a support system in Australia. And so they did because like the first people they ever met here were Christians their support system suddenly came from the church and it's that kind of thing where it's like it's that awkward intersection of like yes they've had really positive experiences in the church and with religion but then how much of that is like this is the way the church systematically like targets people um who really don't have that sort of support system in their country like it was just like textbook like textbook systematic like indoctrination (laughs) or whatever um yeah which is always like a weird intersection for me Yeah, I think in the same way that we talked in the race episode that a lot of the pitfalls with the representation of race in A Crown of Candy is due to the fact that the cast is majority white and Mm. there is like, there just wasn't enough of a enough research as there should have been into portraying these characters the same thing can be said for religion especially when you double up with the fact that the rocks are black and that Candia well, this is mostly a fan interpretation, but Cania can be seen as kind of like a country of color, a country of mostly um, people of color. As long as we all get personal, um, I'm Catholic by birth, like my family's Catholic. And the way I interact with Catholicism as like um, someone Latino is a lot different than how white people interact with Catholicism and like for me um attending Spanish mass mass in Spanish is a very much different experience than attending like mass in English and those are two very different things for me every person actually related to the rocks completely missed out on like how they are supposed to be black because they didn't actually talk about it um yeah like we talked about it in the race episode where it's like they just the lack of communication there and the fact that they just didn't really think about it is like, yeah, so there's a downfall when it comes to that. Mm. I am going to also put this out there in terms of myself and religion. I also technically come from a Catholic household. Both parents <laughs> of mine are Catholic. However, I did mention this a little bit earlier. My, I have a very strange exposure to different types of religion and also different types of Catholicism in and of itself because. I had an exposure to Yoruba because I am uh, Boricua, and Yoruba is specifically something that a lot of people associate it with uh, Cubans. However, there is a huge portion of Yoruba culture in um, Puerto Rico in and of itself because Cuba and Puerto Rico are like very close and Yoruba is from like the slave trade that happened. And... So I have that background. I have a Santeria background. I have a background of like Russian, Russian Ukrainian Orthodox Catholicism because <laughs> I I know how to speak Ukrainian, but only in church. <laughs> Fun fact. So I have that background, and then of course I have like the Puerto Rican, um, the Boricua kind of Catholicism as well. In terms of like I celebrate uh, Dia de los Reyes. I celebrate that. That's fully something that's part of my uh, every like epiphany culture that I partake in. So, and then of course I also have my uh, neighbors who practice Hinduism. 
<laughs> even from like even from my perspective i already have this very strange interaction of like not even just religion in terms of being a person of color but also religion from the white side of my family <laughs> and what that means to me and it's fully something that nobody in a chronic candy has fully like acknowledged which is on how we see a lot of like repression in terms of religion, but we don't see how we don't see like the celebratory portions of religion. We don't see the church hat on Cara Melinda. We don't see we don't see the music. We don't see the joy because especially in terms of black people and religion, even though a lot of Catholicism and a lot of Christianity was forced on us as black people we turned it into something that we celebrate which is why our music in church is so different and vibrant which is why the clothes that we wear to church is so different and vibrant because we weren't allowed for hundreds of years we weren't allowed to wear our hair as we wanted to and so a portion of overcoming that uh, social oppression was by wearing those huge church hats to go to church there's a lot yeah. of self-expression religion from people of color and it's something yeah. very beautiful and something that I love about us so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you saying, oh, we don't we don't see a lot of the celebratory parts of religion has definitely just like unlocked something I did want to talk about mm. or not really talk about, but expand on in that. It does suck that like we don't see anything good, like any happy celebrations from religion. Because again, re when religion is practiced by people of color, it's a lot of celebration. There are a lot of celebratory events. So it is sad that like we have the bulb and then we also don't get to see a Kantian version of the bulb aside from Satrina, who's only there for a very short amount of time. So I feel like that's another missed opportunity mm. to have a kind of candy and brand of um, the Bulbian faith that mm. is very celebratory and very kind of happy because I feel like religion can be a very happy experience for like the people who reclaim it, especially in a sense of like from your background, Chrome, of like uh, reclaiming Catholicism and Christianity after the slave trade and from mine um my background reclaiming Catholicism after like colonialism mm -hmm. so yeah missed opportunity yeah I think we went on a bit of a tangent there but I think it's all just yeah. like um yeah religion is clearly a really nuanced thing for a lot of people and and again I don't think a crown of candy would have been the best campaign to portray all of this anyway and I'm not mm -hmm. really expecting a bunch of white people to understand and accurately represent the nuances of this i don't think it was the goal of a crown of candy and i don't think it would have been entirely possible for a crown of candy to explore all these things about religion on such a nuanced level but it just would have been mm -hmm. cool to see just a little bit more nuanced or see the kind of thing that could have happened had brennan and the cast been given more time yeah it's just a lost opportunity and i think talking about kind of that like again indigenous religion i feel like this is a good segue into talking about the sugar plum fairy and her representation and what was good and what was bad and what was mostly complicated <laughs> i love her and i miss her but also i hate her characterization <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like i love the sugar plum sugar plum fairy as a concept as like her own kind of thing and then also how she works in the world just makes me mad because she is kind of 
the way she's presented within the campaign is like as a indigenous deity who's helping out the cast at first and then she just kind of once Lapan dies and i rec- i say this every time we talk about spf i recognize that once Lapan died it was very hard for the cast to see her again and see her mm-hmm. often she goes from this kind of benevolent figure to immediately a villain and then when you look at her through a lens of being an indigenous spirit it suddenly does not feel so good that she is a villain yeah sure. i'm gonna put this out there because truly one of the <laughs> hearing you say this breaks my heart <laughs> because we were supposed to fight her from the beginning brendan and oh. Zach sat down and they were like cool this is lapan this is your character uh here's your patron and here's an episode where you're going to fight her oh in the very beginning the sugar pumpers never going to be like a benevolent good guy character and i'm so sorry to tell you this but she was never a good guy yeah i think uh, it was like I- always gonna be like that descent into villainy which i kind of yeah. love because like i know that she was never going to be like the benevolent character but i love her descent into villainy and i just wish that that had been given just a little bit more explanation or screen time and stuff like that um but it's not really the fact that she's a she's never she was never gonna be the good guy that i have an issue with like i kind of love that she's a villain she's great as a villain hashtag girl boss but we needed that positive representation of her religion and of the sweetening path and why exactly her approach to religion wasn't entirely right and i just wish that she had gotten more like a lot more screen time and just been elaborated Mm -hmm. more like we've talked about it plenty before Um, (laughs) like i wish that it had been more clear um like ideologically Mm -hmm. why they were against the sugar plum fairy because it was very much in the episode um ruby like being like you killed my sister so you're dying but i also wanted (laughs) some of that like oh but also you're trying to keep candia away you're trying to like i guess die sweetly um instead of fight back and we don't want that um yeah i think that could have been made so much more clearer we never get to see the actual moral conflict which i think was essential to be like to have spf be that extra step into being an actually really a villain with purpose yeah something i'm going to quickly put out there is that um brennan actually regrets the role that she plays in a crown of candy and if he were to do it again, number one, he would add in a character to continue on Citrina's legacy in the same way that all the other Rock sisters have something to carry on their legacy. Mm-hmm. And number two, he would actually pull back her role in the actual plot in and of itself because she is extremely a villain character. Mm-hmm. And he kind of regrets how evil she comes off, mm-hmm. especially after that. Uh, especially after the conversation he had with me because i fully interpreted the sugar plum fairy as not just being an indigenous deity but also being a huge character a huge portion of like essentially what i viewed as a closed culture because almost Mm -hmm. everybody that we meet in candia is related to the rocks which means they are black right (laughs) they are candy of color and being like okay the sweetening path comes from candia my brain is immediately jumping to cool so it's like it's like we're working with yoruba here we're working with like some kind of like working with yoruba we're working with some kind of culture that comes from like black people or that comes from like people like proclaiming themselves and reclaiming their stories no Mm -hmm. 
No, Sweetening Path is supposed to be Celtic. <laughs> it's supposed to be Druidic in nature. And that's something that Brendan, like, that's something Brendan wasn't aware of because here's the thing of like how the Sugarbum Fairy was um, depicted in the actual canon and the actual show in and of itself is that her pulling back all the magic in Candia, her trying to hold onto it without this like behind the scenes knowledge of what her allegory is supposed to be, to me it comes off as though it's not just that she is a deity in a closed culture, but that so much of the Candia religion has been eradicated and erased and stolen that she is desperately clinging on to everything that she can. She is the only deity, the only major deity left. And that's also my issue with Saccharina because this could have been a moment where Saccharina could have gone a more cleric path and chosen like radical healing instead of radical destruction, right? Because healing can mm. also be radical action. And rather than completely helping Ruby eradicate the Sugar Plum Fairy, it could have been a moment of the people in this country still need you. We still need this magic. And you are actively cutting off, and you're actively cutting off the people who belong to this culture from the flow of magic. And it could have been a beautiful moment of just like, we are, we are bringing back the power of the sweetening path to a country of color. But no, it was just, oh, she's evil. We kill her. We call it a day and we move on, which comes off to me as just like, okay, cool. You just killed a closed culture. That's great. Yeah. And yeah. It was the same thing where um, sort of at the end of the season, it's why I really wish that Liam had used his wish to like, Instead of, like, whatever he used it for, he used it instead <laughs> to bring back the religion. Like, it seemed like such a perfect thing. Like, oh, we heard about yeah. all these gods and deities and the magic of Kenya that, and the culture of Kenya that has just been eradicated by the Bobbian church. It felt like the perfect opportunity for Liam to use the wish to bring that back. That could have been the act of, yeah. like, radical healing, I guess, of that. The desire mm. to change, like, especially because change was, like, that third option between creation and destruction. Um, could have also been that sign of, like, oh, yeah, these beliefs, these cultures that the Kenyans have can be restored. Um, and it's the kind of thing where it's like, clearly they did not, like, it's the downfall of it kind of Kenny that they did not talk about this kind of thing or they did not really reckon with, like, oh, like, the characters they're playing. Like, they did not think about, like, the race of race of Ruby and Jet because of a Amathar. And because of that, it's like we get all these sort of, like, bits in terms of the religion and the portrayal of Candia that sort of just fall flat because they didn't really realise what they were implying. Yeah. I think going Going slightly back to something I mentioned on the atheism question, that like I think it is interesting that magic is not a tool intertwined with faith in this world. Um, a deep pull of high fantasy and gods-based magic is that you can have a connection with the gods. And we sort of got that with Sugar Plum Fairy, with Lil Pan being able to communicate openly with Sugar Plum Fairy. And then it ends up that she's a villain. It's very sad that the one deity that we ended up being able to communicate and commune with mm. and reason with the pcs did not reason with her at all even though she had a yeah. voice even though they could have talked to her instead they just outright killed her so it's oh. very, it, it goes back 
to like when you do a combat there is no such thing as like leaving an enemy alive you have to kill them to end the combat but it's Mm. also just like wow I wish somebody had realized oh wait a minute are we like killing someone important right now should we maybe think this through I oh my god I love the sugar plum fairy I wish she hadn't died my beloved Uh, that being said like I do think it was in character for Ruby very much to instantly Mm. kill her but I think like characters like (laughs) um like Sakarina especially like mm. I don't know maybe just like I know we were told that she'd been fighting against the Sugar Plum Fairy for a while but I think like having that be more explicitly said of like why exactly Sakarina does like hates the Sugar Plum Fairy or like even characters like Theo or Amatha or like especially Amatha who has that connection to like Citrina and the Sweetening Path mm. attempting to reason more with the Sugar Plum Fairy could have been like really interesting yeah, and I also think if they had attempted to reason with her more, it it could have been an opportunity for Brennan to actually like within like canon explicitly say, "Oh no, like the Sugar Plum Fairy is like absolutely bad. Like we absolutely have to kill her." Because if they had attempted to reason with her, it would have given Brennan an opportunity to kind of make her more villainous to a point where we wouldn't be able to sympathize. Yeah, make the mm-hmm. ideology of it all make sense. I think. It's not even that I believe that the sugar plum fairy, as she is, as as we see her, should have lived. But going back to the thing that I was saying about like Saccharina and convincing her to restore the sweetening path to all the people who need and want to partake in it is not is just like she has been hurt so much by these missionaries by these uh by these christian equivalent (laughs) crusaders and uh and i think it's more just like you as you are you need to go however this could it could have been a moment of like rebirth for the sugar Mm. plum fairy and rebirth and a reintroduction of the sweetening path to the lands of candia in and of itself right Mm. isn't it and with what we have right there, I think it would have been great. I think it would have been perfect, <laughs> in my opinion, as someone who partakes and is a portion of these certain closed cultures due to my heritage. But uh, nope, that's not what we get. Instead, what we see is um, an allegory of staying sweet and not getting your hands dirty, and the PCs come completely missing that yeah <laughs> it's a, truly a shame how it seems like so many of these little things are just like completely missed and like poorly executed um because that is yeah. an interesting thing and i think like had it been more explicit had brennan made like maybe like the sugar plum fairies like the fact that they he, she was intended as like a Celtic religion then it would have been like clearly like more obvious and less like oh we are killing the last indigenous deity of this <laughs> country um yes for sure i also want to point um yeah, I also want to say, like, because it's, like, because the church is also, like, a villain in the story, um, and we don't really get a lot of nuance for characters who are good and also believed in religion, and also because now we're fighting, like, the Sugar Plum Fairy, it came across as, like, very, like, so do we have any, like, good portrayals of religion here? Like, at all? <laughs> um, which is a shame, because, like, I'm sure, like, it's clear in other D20 seasons that that, like, that religion as a whole isn't isn't the issue right it's the Mm -hmm. the corruption of it i do give them a bit of the leniency for that because like we know d20 stance of religion and we know that their stance of religion isn't that religion is bad but it just doesn't quite Mm -hmm. come through in a crown of candy this is supposed to be a season where it's just like here's a here's all these like really cool really beautiful religions but 
because we first of all had a scheduling issue, the fire marshal, that whole thing, because we had two battle episodes, probably totaling up to four extra episodes that were completely cut out. We don't see the nuance of religion. We don't see the uh, true vastness of Calorum. Yeah, I think A Crown of Candy makes like really huge leaps in terms of what it's trying to say about religion without actually, without actually like yeah. giving us that information, without actually like exploring it firsthand in canon. Yeah, and I think going back to some of the stuff we said in previous episodes like this is all to say like despite all of these flaws we still very much love a crown of candy and i think we kind of love it because of these flaws because now that we can kind of see based on our backgrounds based on our own previous knowledge all the gaps we're allowed to fill in those gaps completely like this is our mm-hmm. territory now chrome owns this now <laughs> so yeah my coloring book and i do with and i do with it what i please exactly <laughs> yeah i think like yeah i just in general wish that brennan had sort of like made made like what he was trying to do a little bit more explicit in the text mm-hmm. um because now we're kind of left like Oh, I think this is my personal interpretation of it. And I don't actually know if Brennan's trying to do that at all. Um, but also, like, thank you, Chrome, for also being the spokesperson to be like, yes, I had an interview with Brennan and this is what he <laughs> actually meant. Um, it's been really interesting hearing your insight and how, what Brennan sort of supposed, like, meant it to be and that, so that I'm not guessing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a great moment of me actually knowing what he's trying to do. So I'm yeah. very happy that I got that done. <laughs> Yeah, so as we bring this episode to a close, we actually want to give one last shout out to not a question, just a message we got in our Curious Cat inbox because we want to leave this on a positive note. So this person said, so true religion in a crown of candy episode. I don't have a particular question. Just wanted to lend my Jewish support. Thank you. you. I I feel like that one scene (laughs) in Megamind that's like, and I love you, random citizen. That's what I feel like. And I love you, random anonymous person and our curious cat. Random anonymous, I do love you. I send my love. Yes. Mm -hmm. I blow kisses towards you. So yeah, I think this about wraps it up. So... So yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Podcast of Candy. And as our special guest, Chrome, you can give us a shout out. So do you have anything you're working on that you would like to promo? So many things, baby. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, starting March 26th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I am going to be in a Alien Destroy of the Worlds RPG on Twitch. And then starting April 15th, I'm so happy I can tell you guys about this now. I'm going to be in a Blades of the Dark campaign with (gasps) Off the Table starting April 15th. And, oh God, I'm so excited for that. Also, follow me on Twitter for any updates. I have sent in so many voice auditions for other things. And also... (laughs) I make art, and did I mention this? I'm pretty sure I mentioned this. I am making a webcomic and a graphic novel. <laughs> yeah, and just so Thank for God. the listeners, can you give us your Twitter handle one more time? Absolutely. You can follow me at Curls Borealis. Curls is in the curls of hair. Borealis as in Aurora Borealis. So Curls Borealis. <laughs> 
perfect. And as always, you can find me at SpideyDevil616 on Twitter or Gardens of Eve on Tumblr. And you can find me at KindleStuck on Twitter and KindleSpark on Tumblr. This is a mini series. Our next episode will be released at 11:59 Monday uh, Australian Standard Time, and that'll be like Monday morning for most other people. Find us at a podcast of Candy on Twitter and Tumblr to stay updated, um, and you can ask questions for us to answer on our podcast through our Curious Cat on Twitter or our Tumblr inbox. And we're super interested in seeing your reactions. So whenever you want to tweet about us or post about us on Tumblr and just tell us your opinions about the things we said, you can use the hashtag ACOCPOD. That is A-C-O-C-P-O-D. ACOCPOD so we can find it. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.